0: Well, happy Easter to those of you who are on site, as well as those who are joining us online this morning. I think it's safe to say that Easter is one of our favorite holidays, especially around the church. Is that, is that true? Yeah, probably second only to maybe Christmas. But, but here's the thing, Easter and Christmas have a lot in common, not only do we focus upon, you know, activities revolving around Jesus, but they're also days that bring a great sense of hope and joy. Those are themes that are are common to both of them. and Now, for many people, that's actually what a lot of us are in search in for our lives, especially these past days. We've we've had a bit of a rough year. We're not going to talk too much about that today. We've had a bit of a rough year, and I think we could all use a little hope and a little joy. And so I'm glad that you're with us today, and I hope that that is part of what you're able to experience. Now, as a pastor... I have a wonderful opportunity to meet many people in our surrounding community, but also within our worshiping community. And part of my job is to help them understand and see sort of what part, what role Jesus plays in bringing us a sense of hope and joy. And that's actually... I think one of the main themes that we see in Easter, and it actually kind of sums up one of the central beliefs that exist within the whole Christian faith. We we actually just sang about that a few minutes ago in that song, In Christ Alone, My Hope is Found. Why? Because He is my light, He is my strength, and He is my song. Now, I am a big fan of that song. Any other fans of that one? Yeah, a lot of hands going. Yeah, fantastic song. We love that one. A day in the future when we're able to sing again, I just want to warn you to not sit in front of me because I'm not a good singer, and I'm probably going to sing that one belted out pretty strong when that day comes. Now, over the years, I've had the opportunity to help people understand the depth of this truth in their own lives, but there's also been people who have come alongside me to help me understand that in my life as well. One of these people was a guy named Les. Now, Les was a faithful follower of Jesus for his entire life. He accepted Jesus into his life as a child. And over the decades, he, he continued to grow in his knowledge and grow in his faith in Jesus. I met Les when he was about 70, and he was still going strong. I, I, went, I started serving at a church, and I was one of his pastors. And, you know, he was never missing a Sunday He was one of those guys where you could be guaranteed when you walked into the church on Sunday morning, you would find him standing there with a cane in one hand and a coffee in the other and a big smile, just ready to greet everybody who walked into the building. He was also leading in a senior's Bible study on a weekly basis, and for decades, he had been the head of our men's ministry and continued to serve in that ministry for decades, there's an incredible passion in him for men's ministry in particular, and a passion that it was sort of instilled in me that I still believe in that vision today, and, and his vision was if you can reach one man, family, if you can change a family, you can change a home, if you can change a home, you can change a neighborhood, and I still believe in the power of men's ministries for those reasons. Now, Les and I didn't always agree on everything, that's for certain. You know, he had a bit, of a, a bit of an older style and way that ministry should happen and, and what should take place. And he and I would regularly debate this. So quite aggressively at times, we would debate how these things should happen. But, but every time we would get into these discussions, without fail, without fail, he would, he would eventually stop our verbal wrestling. And he would smile and he would share a Bible verse with me. And then, and then tears of joy would fill his eyes, and he would give me a hug. And he'd say, I love you, pastor. Because he, he loved the Lord, and he loved me as his pastor, as his partner in ministry, and as his friend. Now, the day came when Les's health deteriorated, and he had to go into assisted living. And over time, the assistants became more assisted. And the one thing that he really grieved the most was his loss of purpose, or what he felt was a loss of purpose anyways. And in his final days, I had gone to visit him regularly, but I got got called in specifically this particular day to come see him. And and I walked into the room, and he he was just kind of writhing in bed. And I could tell that something was really deeply troubling him. And so I said, what's wrong, Les? And I was shocked by the question that he asked me. You see, tears filled his eyes again, but, but for a different reason. It wasn't joy this time. Tears filled his eyes as he looked at me, and he asked me the question, enough. I was shocked by that. Here's a man who had told so many people over so many decades that Jesus was enough. I, I, I said, what do you mean? And he reassured me that he still believed in Jesus, and, in, in Jesus' death and, and resurrection. He still had faith in Jesus. But in these moments, he was plagued with this question What if I didn't do enough? What if I, what if I didn't do the right things? What, what, what if I did too much wrong? What about all the stuff that I've left unfinished? You see, Les had lived trusting in the sufficiency of Christ. But now he was facing this moment where he was going to pass into eternity of Christ he asked me one of the most important questions that I think faces every single person in this world no matter who you are no matter what your background is no matter where you come from one of the most important questions that you need to ask yourself is is Jesus enough and it's a question that is so central to the meaning of Easter that I think it's a question worthy of us considering for a few moments today now, many people, like less, and like many have heard in churches or maybe on radio, TV, podcasts, maybe from a friend or a loved one, that Jesus is the answer. And that by confessing Jesus is the Son of God who died upon the cross and rose again to life on the third day, thereby paying the price for all of our sins, that, that we can request that his victory be applied to us. And if we do that, that God will forgive us of all the wrong things that we've done, past, present, and future, and then grant us the ability to live eternally with him in heaven. That's what Acts chapter 4 verse 12 is about, where it says, Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. Now, if you are new to the contents of this verse, I, I want to let you know about a course called Alpha. Alpha Course is a place that exists where you can explore these claims, where you can ask your questions in a, in a very open and safe environment. And I encourage you to contact us at the church to see how you can get involved in that so that you too can start to answer this most critical question. Billions of people in the world have accepted this as truth and right now, today, are celebrating Easter Sunday with us. But could salvation really be that simple? Could it really be possible to receive such an amazing gift that we didn't earn and that we don't deserve? Like nothing else in life that I can think of gives so much and requires so little back in return. And because of that, some people think, well, it's a too-good-to-be-true statement. There's, there's got to be fine print somewhere. There's got to be more to it. And based upon that thought, that we kind of practically at times default to a more tenable concept. And the concept that we default to at times is accepting God's gift in Jesus plus my good works equals salvation. Eternity with heaven. Jesus' work plus my work equals salvation. Now, if that was true, is Jesus enough? No. He wouldn't be. He would be almost enough. <laughs> but, but he wouldn't be enough. He would only be one part of it. A major part of it, maybe 99% of it, even only being 99% of it, means that Less's question, has merit. And that he has a right to be fearful. Because what if he didn't do enough? What if he did too much wrong? What if he did leave too much unfinished? What if he did fall short on his 1%? Well, I've got bad news for you. All of us fall short. All of us fall short. For all of us have sinned. That's the bad news. But knowing the bad news makes the good news so good. You see, Paul, who who established many of the churches in the first century and and, and wrote letters to all these churches that make up much of our New Testament, wrote one particular letter to a church in a place called Ephesus. And he was trying to address a conflict very similar to this, where where some people in the church were trying to add steps. They were trying to add requirements to salvation. They were basically trying to define what does that 1% look like. And so Paul had to clear this up for them in a letter, and he did so in Ephesians 2, verses 8 and 9, where he says, folks, for it is by grace you have been saved, through faith. And it is not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. It's not by works, so that nobody can boast. See, Paul clearly states here that we are saved by grace. Grace is a word that means we didn't earn it, and we don't deserve it. It is simply, purely a gift that is given. And if you read the rest of chapter 2, you find that the gift that is given, the gift that's being referred to here, is Jesus' death upon the cross and his victory over sin, death, and the grave. That was payment for our sins. That was the gift. Now, some may ask, well, why do I need to have payment made for me? Well, the reality is we all need to have payment for us because all of us are imperfect. As I said a moment ago, all of us fall short, which means none of us are able to stand before a just, holy, perfect God. If he allowed us into his presence in that state, it would, it would tarnish his perfection, his holiness, his purity by associating with us in our imperfect state. Now, many people will look around the world and they go, but but I'm a good person. And you know what? You're right. You are. Compared to other people in the world that we compare ourselves to, I'm willing to bet that that so many people in this room right now or so many watching online are are good people relative to the ones that we read about on the news and, and newspapers and hear about in other areas. But that's not the standard. See, the standard is not us versus other people. The measurement is, is God. And when that's the measurement, we all fall short. It's like having a drawer full of white T-shirts. And, and, and we just grab them and go, oh, that's clean. And we put it on. And we, we wear it for a while. And there's different kind of shades of white, right? Because there's the one that you do the yard work in. And that's kind of white, right? But, but then there's the one you wear under a dress shirt or something. And, and that one's more white. But then you go buy a new pack of white shirts, And you realize what you thought was white isn't so white anymore. And you have a new definition of white. You see, the bar got raised. And when we talk about levels of goodness and levels of purity and levels of holiness, the bar that is established is not not different shades of white in, in somebody's drawer. The standard is purity and holiness. It is God. But when Jesus, God in human form, who was innocent of all that, who was, who was innocent of all sin, died upon the cross. He took all of that, that filth, that, he took all of that sin, all of that punishment, all of that separation from God that we deserved. As it says, he who had no sin became sin. He took it upon himself because he was the only one sufficient to pay the price He was the only one able to offer us the gift that made it so that we could stand in the presence of God. And Paul tells us that the means by which we receive that gift is by faith. By faith. But by placing our faith in what? Well, by placing our faith in Jesus, the Son of God, sent in love to provide the way. So John 3.16 is about. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that so whoever believes in him, whoever lays claim to him in faith, shall not perish, but will have eternal life. And we see here that that Jesus agrees with Paul, or, or more accurately, Paul agrees with Jesus, that when we believe in the Son, that is the way to the Father. When we understand the deal that God is offering, and we're willing to place our trust in it, that is the pathway to salvation. And the way we do this is found in another one of Paul's letters. This time a letter he wrote to the church in Rome. Where he says, If you declare with your mouth Jesus is Lord, and if you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it is with your heart that you believe and are justified, and it is with your mouth that you profess your faith and are saved. In this verse, he outlines a very simple two-step process that there must be an inward decision, but there also must be an outward declaration. And this is so common in the world around us in terms of this two-step process. So we should be familiar with what he's laying out here. He's uniquely applying it to our relationship with God, but it's not an unfamiliar process. Consider, for example, any of you who have, you know, been hired for a job which i'm going to guess is almost all of us if not all of us at some point there is a, a an offer made to hire you that you accept there's a decision made to extend hire a job and to accept but then you got to show up there's got to be something beyond the decision to say yes you got to actually show up and the company has to actually pay you if that second part isn't there you're going to question the quality of the agreement and you're probably going to go looking for a new job, or the employer is going to go looking for a new employee. We see this also exists within marriage, where when we have a wedding ceremony, we stand before our friends, family, and before God, and we, and we swear our vows. I will love you, honor, protect, tease and tickle, these sorts of things. Is that, it? that wasn't my wedding vows, not yours. Yeah. We, we make these promises, right? We do these sorts of things. We make these commitments. Believe it in our hearts. But then after the wedding, if if you don't follow through on that, you start forgetting your birthdays. The anniversary just keeps sneaking up on me. Man, I just can't seem to remember that. Or worse yet, if you're kind of seeing some people on the side, you're going to end up in my office for counseling as both of you are questioning the sincerity and the future of that commitment. You see, to say that you believe something in your heart and your head It's more than just simply having the head knowledge about that. It starts there, where we we have a knowledge about salvation, understood the offer of grace that's extended, but then our head sends it to our heart. And your heart is the executive decision making of your entire life. Where your heart is will lead so much of what you do and what you commit to. And when your heart believes, now your whole life will embrace that idea and will trust in that idea. Just as I believe with my whole heart that I love my wife, with my whole being I love her, and that is validated through my acts of service, of how I try to into that belief. Well, so too when we embrace Jesus. When we embrace the truth that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. That Jesus is the only way to the Father. But we must publicly profess that inward decision as well. He said inward decision must lead to outward expression. There's lots of ways that this can happen. We we can do this through telling people about the new life we've received in Christ. And the difference that he makes in our lives. We, we can care for the needs of others and show God's love. Let God's love come through us as we, as we minister to them in word and in deed. We can invest in our relationship with God. Where we read our Bibles and we pray and we, we come to worship services and gather with other fellow believers to worship and in talents and resources. Or, there's one very important way that we can outwardly express the belief that's in our heart. There's a there's way that was commanded by Jesus specifically to do this, and that is through the act of baptism. Baptism is one of the most beautiful, one of the most incredible ways to outwardly express that inward decision that has taken person to place in his life, to outwardly express that inward transformation that has taken place. And in the moment, we're going to have the opportunity to witness four baptisms, as people come forward in the waters of baptism to humbly profess in word of Jesus, as they go into the water and go under, symbolically stating that their old life is buried with Christ, identified in his death. But then as they come back up out of the water, declaring that they are risen to newness of life, identified with him in his victory. You see, baptism, it doesn't make these people Christians. That happened when they placed their faith in the grace of God, when they trusted fully that in Christ alone their hope is found, as we sang earlier today. And that was the answer that I gave Les when he asked me, is Jesus enough? You see, I had known Les long enough to know that he believed in his heart that Jesus was the Son of God, sent to pay the price for his sins. I had seen... Jesus living in less and through his life for years. And because of that, when he asked me that question, I was able to take his hand and lean down and softly but confidently speak in his ear. Less, there is no other, no other action, no other good work, no other deed by which we might be saved. Rest assured, my friend, Jesus is enough the story of these people who are about to be baptized. I pray that the story of less and that the story of these people with us today may touch your heart as we celebrate with them as they profess this through baptism.